going to be in Judges chapter 4. And what we saw last time that I taught was three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Today we're going to see two judges, Deborah and Barack. <laughs> Not Barack Obama. <laughs> how, um, how weird, right? I mean, he's running for office and we run into this character named Barack, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Did his parents name him after the Old Testament judge? You know, it's a possibility. Yeah, it's, he spells it differently. I think he has a C before the K. But anyway, so we're going to check out these two, Deborah and Barak, and um, it's going to be interesting. Starting with verse 1. Judges 4, verse 1. When Ehud was dead... The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We're going to see that a lot throughout this book. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. We're going to see a lot about Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hagoyim. Did I say it good, Bobby? Harosheth Hagoyim? And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years, he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. I'm going to stop there. There's a lot in those three verses. Now, what it appears is, because the last thing we left off with was Shamgar. And now he's talking about uh, Ehud was dead. But it appears that Ehud was more of a national judge, whereas Shamgar was a regional one. As a matter of fact, according to Judges 3, if you go back um, uh, to verse 30, it says, under Ehud, Israel had 80 years of peace. So he seemed like more of a, a national judge. But what I want to focus on is one particular verse. The Lord sold them into the hand of the Canaanites. Does that strike anybody? Does anybody have a problem with that? Usually the people on my Wednesday nights are very well versed in the scripture. So you're like, eh, it doesn't. But there's some that maybe who are new Christians might say, wow, that, that kind of pains me. How could the Lord... So sell his own people into the hand of the Canaanites. Well, first thing is the Lord won't take second place in anyone's life. That's not the Lord's thing. The Lord shows a lot of grace. He's very merciful, very loving. But one thing that the Lord will not do was show up at, and see, he never takes the silver or the bronze. He's always got to take the gold. And I think the point here, too, is the other point is you want to sin that bad, you got it. Drink it up. And those people who live that double life, you know, they're teeter-tottering and they're, they keep flirting with the sin and keep getting involved with it and then they come out of it and go back. But finally, the Lord says, here's that sin, you want it, it's all yours. <laughs> Have at it. And, and this is just one of those things. They were flirting with these people, flirting with their gods, and the Lord just said, here, now be enslaved by them. The sad thing is sometimes it takes a tragedy for people to wake up regarding the depths of their sin. And I think this is also a, um, a shot across the bow to anybody reading it, to be careful when you call yourself a Christian and you lead a double life. Uh, it it's just causes an instability in your walk. I want to read Hebrews 12 about discipline. <laughs> Hebrews 12, verses starting with verse 5. Just so, you know, who's, who knows? I mean, there's, what, 10, 12 people here tonight? Somebody could be listening on the Internet. They could get a CD. And you know what? I'm going to make it more understandable as I read through the scripture. This is really like the discipline chapter, Hebrews 12, starting with verse 5. 
It says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now, this is pretty amazing. Not only is he saying to be, I know it's hard to, for people to swallow, but be encouraged when you're getting disciplined. When the Lord chastens you, you know, be happy, knowing that the Lord loves you, you're close to him. And he says, if you're not disciplined, if you never receive discipline, you know what? You better even examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, because whom the Lord loves, the Lord chastens. And even with our children, children with their lips say, I want to be independent, I want to be independent. But do you know that, and I said this at the men's breakfast, whether they're little kids or teens, in their heart, even if they don't know it, they're saying, Mom, Dad, do you love me enough to show me boundaries? Do you love me enough if I'm, if I'm hurting myself, will you stop me? Will you put your foot down? Will you go to battle with me to say, that's enough. I don't, I'm doing this for your own good. There's a lot of things in here. Furthermore, verse 9, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. So he likens the, the discipline that a father gives a son or parents give their children to what God does with us in our lives. And sometimes we look at our lives and we know we're being disciplined and it, it's very uncomfortable. And maybe the first response, especially in the flesh, is to God, maybe be mad at God and, and say, you know, and almost throw a tantrum. I mean, who, none of, I'm sure we've all done it here. Almost like, you know what, Lord, you don't love me. Or just to have that in your heart, to think that the Lord is, is doing something to hurt you. But, and I, I'm not, I know I'm kind of really getting into this, and I hope I'm not being redundant, but he says, we respected our fathers who, res, who, who chastened us if they've you know, disciplined us in love. Uh, and how much more the father of spirits should we respect? Verse 11, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And of course, whether it's your human parents that are disciplining you or you know that God is dealing with you with something, it doesn't feel good. That's, I mean, the nature of discipline, it doesn't feel good. But um, there's, there's, a, there's fruit that it yields. Now, does this mean that every time something bad happens in your life that God's disciplining you? No. That, I have to make that clear. There's, things happen in our lives for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's discipline. Sometimes it's the effect of somebody else's sin in your life that may be close to you. And because of their sin, you're being affected. It may not be God dealing with you at all. It may be just the result of a fallen world. You know, the, a hurricane blows your house down. So there's a lot of things why bad things happen to, a lot of reasons why bad things happen to good people. Uh, but discipline certainly is part of that process in some instances. And the last thing is First Peter 4, 17. It says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. So God's going to judge the world, but God is certainly going to judge his own people. You know, he's not starting with the children of Israel, starting all the way back in, even in Genesis, and up until the present, God is going to deal with his people because he loves us. Okay, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. 
And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedish and Naphtali, and said to him, quote, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, quote, If you will go with me, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now, we're introduced to Deborah. Her name means literally a bee, like a, bzz, a bee that stings you. So Deborah's name means bee. And she's both a prophetess and a judge. Now, the children of Israel would come up to her, and of course, as a prophet, she would hear things from the Lord and tell what had, you know, what the, as thus saith the Lord, the Lord speaking to you. And I, I understand from reading this also, she judged Israel at the time. It does appear that um, maybe she was like a judge like Moses was, where the people would come to her and she would decide cases and things like that. Now, the story of Deborah raises all kinds of questions about women in ecclesiastical or spiritual authority. And some will use this as a proof text to say, see, Deborah was a judge, therefore women should be pastors. <laughs> that's a stretch. <laughs> I mean, that's going from A to Z. And we're going to take this apart because it's very fascinating. That's a stretch. But on the other hand, we know that if we look at Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, incidentally, that the women can hold the majority of offices and have a majority of the gifts. Um, women can be prophetesses. We see that. Phoebe was a deaconess. Uh, women could uh, be, have discerning of spirits. If you actually look at the offices and the, the gifts of the spirit, women can hold the majority of them. There's actually very few that women can hold. Now, Paul says that two things. I just don't permit a woman to, to have authority over a man or to teach a man. She could teach other women. She could teach teens, uh, children. But in a particular authoritative role, a woman's not supposed to have that. I'm going to, I'm going to keep going with this. Watch. Let me hopefully. Actually, for this particular subject, I'm going to have a question and answer at the end because it does raise a lot of questions, and I hope I cover them all. Verse 6. She says to Barak, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Now, this is just prophet lingo, okay? This is prophet lingo for this is what the Lord said you must do. It was almost like a kind of like the Oda in Star Wars, you know, the questions, the way the questions were asked, but it's really a statement. Of course, the, the Bible preceded Star Wars. But if you look at it, <laughs> I just have to make that clear. And I don't want anybody making a new doctrine. But if you look at it, she's fulfilling the office of a prophet in giving Barak his marching orders from the Lord. As the prophet of the Lord, this is what the Lord says, Barak, get your stuff together, take these men and go. Okay? She didn't say we, she said you. Verse 7. Deborah tells Barak that the enemy will be delivered into his hands. Okay? Look at verse 7. I will deliver them into your hand. Again, she didn't say we, she said yours. This is important. Now, what's Barak's response in verse 8? Basically, uh-uh, I'm not going anywhere unless you come with me. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing that. 
And that's what he's basically saying. If you go, I'll go with you. Deborah, if you're not going with me, I'm not going. Okay? Now, that was not the Lord's original plan. Deborah didn't say us. And I look at this as a way that we tweak the Lord's plans. And we all do it. God tells us to do something, right? But we have to put little stipulations in there. What did he tell Abraham? Get up out of your land, away from your kindred, and go to a land that I will show you. What does he do? You know, he goes with Lot. God didn't tell him to take Lot with him. He said, get up, away from your kindred, you know, go yourself. And this is what I want you to do. But he tweaked it. A lot of people in the Bible tweak God's plan. And we do that too. God tells us to do something and we say, okay, but I'd like to do this too. Can I add this as a sidebar? And that's what you see happening here. Verse 9. These are the ramifications of Barak changing the rules in the middle of the game. Okay, verse 9. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, basically she's saying to uh, Barak, hey, buddy, there's going to be no glory in this for you. The evil Sisera will be delivered into the hand of a woman. For those of you who came in in the middle, uh, we're in Judges 4. We're right about verse 9. Now, this is important because there's a cultural aspect here, right? In those days, men would fight the wars. In those days, the men would have the spoils of the war. In those days, the man would capture the other man of the other team, and he would put his foot on his neck, and he would subjugate that man. Here, she's saying, not only there's not going to be any glory for you, but Sisera, the commander of this great army with the 900 chariots, is going to fall into the hands of a woman. That was, that was a little bit of... Um, there was a little bit of taking away what he was supposed to have. Um, to, again, the Lord's giving the victory to a woman. Now, here's the irony here. The name, again, <laughs> there is somebody running for president whose name is Barak. I don't know if it's the same Barak from the Bible, but um, the word Barak, his meaning, as Deborah's means be, Barak's meaning means lightning. What's very interesting here is that when we look at Barak, we don't see lightning. We're reading the story, and he's giving us everything else but the picture of what lightning would be. Fierce, destructive, powerful. That's not the Barak I'm reading about. But what I find interesting is that the Lord sees us for our potential. Okay? He sees us for our potential. Not often how we present ourselves, unfortunately. Remember Gideon. Gideon was a chicken. He was afraid. He was uh, threshing the wheat in the wine press. Where there was, you know, instead of up here, he was down low because he didn't want the enemy to see him. And it was the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. I could picture him going, who's he talking about? Talking to me? You know, that was Gideon. He wasn't, uh, he was a fearful guy, but he was called by the Lord a mighty man of valor. So a lot of times God, the names here, or God sees us for the potential that we have, not actually how we're acting. Barak, again, here in this story was a picture of a lazy man. (laughs) And this is a good continuation of Sunday's message where I talked about Paul and how Paul would work. He'd make tents. When the money came in, he would stop making tents and devote his life completely to the gospel. When the money dried up, he'd go to making tents again. That's just the way Paul was. Paul believed so strongly in his calling that if he had to work, he would work. Here, um, compared to Paul, Barak's a lazy guy. And, and really, when men shirk their responsibility, a woman will often pick up the ball. There's, in Christendom, people like to complain about uh, certain groups, feminist groups, that they're militant, you know, and they have these names for them. Um, but, you know, a lot of times these women groups become so militant 
because of the failure of a man in their life. And I'm just I'm going to give them a little kudos there. A lot of these women organized and became strong because of maybe a, a molestation issue or a father that left them or a husband that treated them poorly. And they said, you know what, we have to be strong. There's also cases where a man will shirk his responsibility, and particularly in a marriage, Genesis 3.16 says that if a man drops the ball, the woman, the woman will pick up the ball and she'll become the leader in the home. Genesis 3.16, the man's ideal is to be the leader in the home, but the man's flesh will want to be lazy. The woman's ideal will be to submit to the husband, a godly husband, and be a supporting wife. The non-ideal in a woman's flesh will be to take over and dominate her husband. Very interesting how if a man and a woman are in Christ and doing the right thing, they work in harmony. And I'm blessed to have a wife that is filled with wisdom, and I listen to a lot of what she says, but she also gives way and acquiesces to my leadership in a home, and things work very well in our home. Not, they're not always perfect. doesn't mean we never have an argument, but you know, it, it's a good thing. So what you see, again, I'm not saying anything's happening here between Deborah and Barack. She had her own husband. But, um, and I'm not going there, but there's a role reversal there. Deborah picks up the ball because Barak drops the ball. So this is a very interesting portion of scripture. A few points to take from this. Number one, why would God use Barak at all? <laughs> right? Why would he use this guy? The answer, 1 Corinthians 1, which again, we went over Sunday. God often uses the most foolish or base things to accomplish his will. Now, if you look at the judges, they all had severe shortcomings. One in particular had a physical disability. Um, I believe it was Ehud. Yes, Ehud had a, a physical disability. He was left-handed. He had a, uh, a disability. Um, if you look at anyone God ever used in the Bible, you see whether it's a, a, a spiritual disability or a physical disability, there's some type of disability. Look at Samson. Samson was a self-centered skirt chaser. I mean, think about it. Samson is always idealized or idolized when they teach the kids. He's this big, handsome, buff, big pecs, big biceps with the sword. You know, he's this really great-looking guy. But his character was weak. When when we get into uh, Samson, you, you read that he had a very poor character. He wasn't a great guy. But God used a lot of the weak and base things of the world to confound the wise and and actually achieve his will. And again, it doesn't mean that he didn't punish these people for their sin. Samson definitely got punished. Uh, Two, ideal situations versus less than ideal situation. I like this. Ideal situation would be for Barak to be obedient and take the challenge without giving the Lord stipulations. And we covered those stipulations. Yes, Lord, I'll do this, but I want this. You know, I want to change the rules. Less than ideal is the situation that unfolds. Either way, the children of Israel will be delivered. And this is where you can see free will versus sovereignty. God says, this is my ideal. This is my plan. Man, I want you to do that. Man will will drop the ball. He'll goof up. Moses will say, but I can't speak. Okay, here's Aaron. Wasn't God's ideal, but God said, I will do this. You're still going to do what I ask you to do. So you can see that man has free will, but God still has sovereignty. And they work together. Neat stuff. Second point, less than ideal, Numbers 22. Remember Balaam, he was a prophet of God. He, was, he really liked money. And he got up one, one night and begged the Lord, can I get up and I go see King Balak? Because Balak was going to give him riches. And the Lord finally let him do it. He relented. So uh, uh, Balaam gets up and he's on his donkey and an angel of the Lord draws the sword. Now, ideal would be for God not to have to do that. For Balaam to say in the middle of that journey, you know what, God really didn't want me to do this. 
you know what, I'm sorry, Lord, I repent. I'm going to turn back around and do what you asked me to do, but that didn't happen. Less than ideal was for God to use the angel of the Lord to draw the sword and the donkey to be frightened and crush Balaam's foot and make him turn around. <laughs> and make, have the donkey actually argue with, um, with Balaam and make more sense that Balaam was making. Kind of reminds me of Shrek, the talking donkey, you know what I'm saying? Again, the Bible came first. All right, verse 11. I really like this. I had a blast studying this. 11. Now, Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth, Hagoim, to the river Kishon. Now the Kenites, this is interesting because Heber separates himself from the Kenites. If you remember from the Kenites that we spoke about earlier, they were the good guys. Okay, They were on the side of the children of Israel. But Heber separates himself from his kinsmen to become a traitor to the children of Israel. Traitors. Judas was a traitor, and they always work against God's people. You know, in every ministry, there's a traitor, somebody who has to work against God's people. They're double-minded, they're unstable, and they often play both sides because they have a weak foundation. And this is Heber. Um, and what's, what's interesting is that Jesus chose the twelve, but one was a traitor. And I think traitors are put in there in these ministries to test the leaders. Because if a good leader is really in prayer and he's really in the word and his heart is right, it doesn't matter what the traitor tries to do, the leader will, a, a man of God, the leader will always prevail. Jesus was the perfect example. Just a, a few geographical points. Mount Tabor, if you were looking at a map, Mount Tabor is about five miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee, and the river Kishon runs northwest from Mount Gilboa to the Mediterranean uh, south of the Sea of Galilee. And that's important because this battle, if you look at it geographically, it's kind of west of the Sea of Galilee, a little bit south of the Sea of Galilee, sandwiched in between that, those, uh, the mountain range and the Mediterranean. What is that? Who's a Bible scholar? Who really? That's a hard one. If you get a visual of it, that really is, it appears to be in the plains of Megiddo, Armageddon. As a matter of fact, we know many famous battles were fought there, and the last great battle will be fought there. As a matter of fact, Josiah, King Josiah, awesome, named my son after him. One big mistake in his life was at the end, and he got taken down in that battle where he wasn't supposed to be um, fighting against, I believe, Pharaoh Nietzsche and his troops. So he, he, he was slain there. So very interesting, a lot of repeats in the scripture. Verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth, Hagoim, I like saying that. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. So, what it appears is that Barak gets a chance to redeem himself. And we know God is the God of his second chances. And we're going to see how this plays out in the end. You know, it's amazing how there's twists and turns. God says, do this. Well, I'll do this, but this. Okay, you're not going to get the glory. And then he kind of says, oh, you know what? I should do this. I'll do this. And God says, well, I'm still going to deliver him into your hand, but still you're going to see how he splits everything. And most of these troops are delivered into the hand of, 
of uh, Barak, but because of his disobedience, the prophecy holds true, and that Sisera falls into the hands of a woman. Okay, I'll make I'll make sense of that. So Barak gets a chance to redeem himself. Um, and verse 15, it says that the the enemy army was routed. When I went into the original wording there, the word routed means confused or struck with a panic, which will destroy the best military. As a matter of fact, when I studied the Battle of Thermopylae at the Thermopylae Pass, the movie 300 with the Spartans against the Persians, what, what really ruined them was the fact that the phalanx started opening up. The Greeks were unmatched when it came to their wall of bronze, all huddled together, and they just were slaying the the, um, the uh, Persians by the 10,000s. I believe it was the archers of the Persians that caused the phalanx to start to open up, and then the Persians were able to get in there, and then it was a war of attrition, one man for one man, basically. They fought valiantly, but they all died. So, bottom line is, when you strike fear or you strike panic or anything where it causes disorganization of an army, that's when the army starts to lose, and these guys were losing because the, the Lord routed them. Um... So even the traitorous actions of Heber, telling the enemy where the children of Israel were, of course, was unable to withstand the Lord's protection. Verse 16. Um, again, it seems that Barak was redeemed. He's able to take most of these people by the edge of his sword. But Sisera alights from his horse, and he's not taken by Barak, and he escapes. Sisera was a trophy. Remember, this guy was a bad dude. He commanded a really great army. They harshly oppressed the children of Israel. People lived in fear of this man. He had 900 chariots to back himself up. And in those days, chariots, if you had horses and they had chariots, is almost as like in Poland in World War II, going against the Germans. The Germans had tanks, and the Polish were on horseback. They were no match for the Germans. So if you take that analogy and bring it back to uh, the Old Testament, you could see that if I knew that my enemy had 900 chariots and I had none, I was terrified. So these people, this was a great victory. Verse 17. It's fun. I love this stuff. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jab and king of Hazor and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Now it appears as though her name is Jael in the English, but really in Hebrew it's Yael. Now the word Yael means mountain goat. How would you, <laughs> with some giggles, how would you like to be a young lady growing up and your name is Mountain Goat? Not very attractive, you know, maybe hard to find a husband, I don't know. But she, it does appear that she's giving aid to Sisera as her husband has made a non-aggression pact with him. So, so far everything seems copacetic. You know, she's the wife of the traitor and the traitor is aligned with the Canaanites and she sees the commander of the uh, Canaanite army and she says, hey, come on, come in here, I'm going to take care of you. Right. Read on. Verse 21. This is a very interesting story. Then Yael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. <laughs> Something else, huh? And then as Barak, I don't think the moral of the story is you, you can't trust a woman, but we're going to we're going to read on. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, 
there lay Sisera dead with the tent with the peg in his temple. A few things about this. Number one, a year ago, a year ago or a year and a half ago, I actually was in station office taking reports, and a young lady came in. She was a young Israeli girl, and her name was Yael. <laughs> she came to headquarters to make a report, and I asked her, I said, um, do you know what your name means? And she goes, oh, yeah. It's back in the Old Testament. She took a tent peg and a hammer and put it through the guy's head, like, just like that, you know? It was kind of interesting, but she had the same spirit. If you play with the order of her name, Yael, um, Yah for Yahweh, the name of God, and El, meaning God in, in, in a general sense, or Elah-Yah or Elijah, which God is Yahweh, you almost see that she, I mean, it's a stretch, but that her name is sort of a type of the fiery prophet Elijah. Again, his name taken, if you, if you take it into meeting, it means God is Yahweh. That's his name, yod heh wav We can talk about that in Q&A. Um, the last thing is Yael disobeyed her traitorous and wicked husband, and somebody else did that. In 1 Samuel 25, if you remember, Nabal, the fool, uh, D- David and his men were hungry. They needed supplies, and Nabal just blew them off. Ah, you know, he just really rebuffed them. And it was only one guy. It was foolish of him to do that, even from a security standpoint. And what did, he was going to kill this guy. And Abigail, his wife, rode out with supplies and said, please, my husband's a fool. Please don't kill him. <laughs> Here's some provisions for you and your men. And she staved off uh, David's anger. But uh, Yael disobeyed her husband. Her husband was wicked and traitorous and went against God's people. And Yael said, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. And we're going to see the, the song of, of Deborah uh, that next time we do it. And it kind of gives a little bit more detail. But, you know, the woman is to obey her husband as unto the Lord, even in the Old Testament. A wife did not have to submit to ungodly direction from her husband. Hebrew was ungodly, and Yala said, I'm not doing that. Verse 21, why a tent peg and a hammer, you may ask? Why not a knife or something? In those days, the women were workers, and the women would put up the tents and take them down. So she would be very handy with a hammer and a tent peg. You know, after doing that for a while, she got good at it, and she put it through the guy's head. And it said it went into the ground. So I could imagine his head was stuck into the ground with this peg sticking through his temple. Hey, look what I did. <laughs> Verse 23. It's just kind of humorous. So on that day, last two verses, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan. And they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So you see a mixed victory here. Everybody got a little something out of the deal. Barak got a second chance to redeem himself, and he did. However, because of his disobedience, the Lord still took away part of his victory. Deborah picked up where Barak fell short. Okay, she picked up the ball. Yael received credit for killing the evil Sisera, according to the prophecy. She probably was hailed as a heroine. And most importantly, God's will was done in delivering the children of Israel. So everybody got something out of the deal. Isn't that amazing how God can do that? Who, who would have ever figured this story out the way all the twists and turns happen? What can we say at the end of the day here? Number one, I think the story is less about, and people try to make it a, a justification, again, way on the other end of the spectrum from women being pastors or having authority over men. But I, I think it's really less about that argument. It's less about the difference between uh, a man and a woman's role, but more about who will be obedient to God and who won't. When you clear it all away, forget about the battle of the sexes, it's who's going to respond to the call of God and who's not. I think that's the bottom line here. Who will be lazy with the things of God and who will be diligent? 
So I pray that the Lord will look into our hearts and convict us if we're found wanting. Let's pray.